0: let's talk oral surgery guys this is your host marcus huang episode 3 how to build the perfect Hybrid practice with dr eric jackson dirks i am so excited for our guest today because he is a prominent figure in oms and that is an understatement he is the co-founder of head and neck surgical associates HNSA here in Portland, Oregon. He established the first head and neck surgery fellowship that was recognized by Amos, which then went on to train many of the chairs in OMS today. He is internationally recognized, being invited all over the world to speak for his various lectures. Some of his famous lectures are on gunshot wounds and airway. He is one of few oral surgeons to be inducted into the Royal College of Surgeons in Edinburgh. I actually didn't know what that was until he showed me the plaque on the wall, and I had to look it up on Google when he wasn't looking. But it is a major accomplishment. Uh, per Dr. Dirks, there are about seven oral surgeons who have been inducted into that society. He had a very interesting route to oral surgery slash ENT. He first went to dental school at the University of Louisville, then did his OMS residency in Delaware, what is now called the Christianic Care Residency. He then went on to the Louisville General Hospital to get his medical degree. He matched to general surgery at Parkland, and during his residency, he switched to ENT to become one of the first, uh, one of the few surgeons at the time to be dual trained in ENT and OMS. We talk a bit about his interest in cars and how that developed him as a surgeon, and then we get into the topics on how to build a private practice that has a hybrid model, and for some of you who are not aware of what hybrid models are, for the purposes of this podcast episode, hybrid models are private practices that do dental alveolar and implant surgery, so in the office, but they also have a presence in the hospital doing major surgeries. I invited Dr. Dirks to talk about this topic because HNSA is a perfect model for the hybrid practice. Our residents at OHSU rotate through there, and per the graduates, they have gotten great training in trauma and management of airway uh, during their rotation there. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. All views expressed on the show and the following episodes belong to the host or the guest and do not represent the opinions of any entity. Dr. Dirks, welcome to the show.
1: Pleased to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Yeah, you know, um, I first met you back here, uh, back when I was an extern here. Uh, And I I bring that up because it's really pertinent to just kind of the person you are and the person that you are to me. You are a very humble surgeon. Um, I remember when I was an extern here, I was this lowly extern, kind of standing in the corner of the surgeon break room, kind of doing my own thing so I don't get in anyone's way. And you came into the room, and you came up to me and said, how are you, young man? And since that day, you have been a great influence to me, showing me what a surgeon could be, Uh, very humble, very gentle, but also really great at the skills that you have. And so that's why I want to talk to you today. Uh, And I mean, today's topic was, it's titled, How to Build the Perfect Hybrid Practice. Um, But we will be talking about other things about yourself. to start, I want to talk a little bit about your interest in cars and how that helped you become a surgeon. Well, how much time do we have? Here? <laughs> well, we have all the time. I mean, we're scheduled till five, but uh, I mean, we can go as long as you want.
1: Well, I, growing up, I always was, was interested in things mechanical. Uh, my father bought a lawnmower, used lawnmower, and it had a spare engine. And so pretty soon I was taking that apart, putting it back together, reading about about internal combustion engines and so on and so forth. And I, as I grew up, I always thought this would be my, my career. Uh, I was a mechanic at a so-called foreign car shop while I was in college, actually. And then I went on to work for the first BMW dealer in Kentucky, and I still did mechanical work. I did sales, probably mostly, and then I set up the parts department, and it was a very small operation. And then um, when I became interested in dentistry, not so much in surgery yet, but I thought, well, I can I can do that. So yeah, I can I can do things and give me a saw, give me some sort of cutting instrument, a a knife of some kind. I'm pretty good with that sort of thing. So I thought I would do well in the dental world.
0: You know, um, the reason why I bring up the car thing is because I also used to work on cars and I just thought it was really nice to see someone else who have interest in cars and then went to become a surgeon. So for cars, I used to build engines and I used to Probably I used to do something opposite from you. I used to drift and race and be uh, (laughs) irresponsible. But working on cars has taught me that components act together to have a function. And I think that's what led my interest to dentistry and then oral surgery. Just biology functions with all these smaller components. And uh, do you think that your experience in car work has helped you treatment plan better and become a better surgeon today?
1: Probably, probably so, in the sense that, again, starting in in the dental world and then continuing into the world of surgery, to uh, to have done mechanical projects, for example, the removal of a clutch and flywheel and replacement of those components with new or reconditioned parts. And to do that, you have to go through certain steps. And to remove the transmission or on the type of car, you have to know it. You have to remove both the engine and the transmission at the same time. Take it apart. You know, look for certain patterns of wear. When do you need to turn the flywheel uh, on a lathe and resurface it? When can you get by without that? You know, always check the pilot bearing. All these things are components. And the job isn't done until all of them have been All the components have been evaluated and performed, and then you have the finished product, and then it is right, proper, correct, and will drive out of the shop and give the owner many miles of proper use. And the same is true, whether it's in doing dental work or surgery, in that the operation has to be broken down into its component parts. Each part has to be done from start to finish for that component and done properly and well and then culminating in the final restoration when we're talking about teeth or the final reconstruction if we're talking about major surgery. And if all the components are done well, each builds on the other and you have a properly done finished product for the patient who is the product. So, that's how I look at it.
0: You have probably given many miles to uh, people's necks, their teeth, and their face uh, over all these years. Before we get into the main topic, what is your favorite car?
1: Well, I, I'm kind of I I like BMWs a lot uh, for for a long history. Um, my my father uh, was born and raised in Germany, and he the man that he idolized was a man named Erich Kagelmacher, and so I was named uncle after my uncle Erich, E-R-I-C-H. When my fa- when I was born, I was born in the U.S., my dad made it more the international name and he cut off the H. Uh, but Uncle Erich worked in Eisenach, Germany, our hometown, for BMW. And I thought that's pretty cool. Uh, so fast forward to my work as a auto mechanic in the late 1960s, early 1970s. I did a little of that overlapping with dental school. And these BMW cars were coming to the US in small numbers, but the engineering was so wonderful and so much better than the competition. So I sort of like that. And I've had a whole bunch of BMW cars. Ever since, so that's a long answer to your question. But I think <laughs> my favorite car would be one of the BMWs, and probably best of all time BMW would be the BMW Z8 Z8, which is a really neat car that was sold in small numbers in the early two thousands, and they're real hard to find and extremely expensive, and I'll never be able to afford one. <laughs>
0: uh, Dr. Dirks drove up in a you drove drove up in a electric BMW and he also mentioned to me that he has a Audi at home Um, and so hopefully someday you can afford and have the dream BMW in the future so yeah we'll get on to uh with today's topic uh so the first question is I mean we're going to be talking about a hybrid private practice model and the reason why I want to talk about this is because Many residents uh, express interest in having both the benefits of having a private practice, the autonomy, the leadership in that area, and also the financial benefits from it. But also they want to keep a footing in doing larger cases, uh, especially in a hospital, orthopaedic cases, head and neck cases, cosmetics, what have you. And it seems like it's harder to do that nowadays, maybe with the competition. But a lot of oral surgeons, they graduate residency and they go into strictly dental, vular, and implant prior practice, and I just worry that in the future, as you know, other specialists do those procedures, uh, what will oral surgeons do? And so, could you first define to the audience here, what is a hybrid prior practice model?
1: Well, I struggled over that definition because I did a study uh, about nine months ago in which I surveyed a number of practices in the United States that did major surgery. And to find a definition of a hybrid practice, the one commonality between these five practices that I identified was the presence of a fellowship program within the practice. Not that the practice is a rotation site for a fellowship based somewhere else, but the fellowship sponsors or is the home of at least one or I'm sorry, the practice is the the home of at least one fellowship program. So the commitment to education taken to the point that you're able to train fellows bespeaks a number of attributes to the practice. One is that you have a large volume, a large volume often but not always related to a specific theme, such as head and neck oncologic surgery and reconstruction another being cleft lip palate and craniofacial among among several. So there must be something attractive to this practice and the members that comprise the practice group to bring patients in in volume enough to train surgeons.
0: I think also in your study you found that um, not only is there just a fellowship program that's associated, you saw that a majority of those hybrid groups had regular OMFS residents rotating through as well. Do you want to touch on that a little bit?
1: Yes. um, Many, uh, but not all, did. Almost all did. And again, the presence of a volume of patients with skilled attending surgeons, experienced attending surgeons, is something that's attractive. And it's also attractive in a way that provides a little different flavor from that that the residents receive at their home institution. And you see that in a number of programs that have I've heard this term refer- referred to many times: the Wild West rotation, <laughs> and where, where, let's say, for example, at the at the home institution, the home university, maxillofacial trauma is covered by three specialties: oral maxillofacial, ENT, plastic surgery, and in almost all instances, none of them are trained to expertise, just by fact that the. the the pie is sliced three ways. So if we have an outside rotation where an oral maxillofacial surgery group does 100% of of the trauma, to take trauma as an example, then we have a rich, focused training environment where a resident rotator can be there for a short period of time and benefit, and a fellow who's there for a year with a theme of pursuing more exposure Uh, will have a rich experience that would add considerably to his or her training received at the university.
0: You know, that's what we see here at OHSU, at my program. We rotate through um, HNSA, which we'll talk about in a little bit, uh, and we do get that experience. I've talked to a lot of graduating uh, OHSU residents, and they always say that in terms of trauma, they feel very comfortable managing anything from clavicle up. And I think That has been a very large benefit of this hybrid model that we get to rotate through so you touch up on something very interesting this is something i read in your 25 year anniversary book about how well and also in your abstract how among the hybrid practices all of them took uh, 24 7 365 call at, at at least one hospital and you mentioned how HNSA serves as this site where residents and fellows can get comprehensive head and neck trauma experience and so on. In the 25-year anniversary book, you talk about the dura to plura, uh, the one-call-does-it-all approach. Could you talk a little bit about that and how that helped define HNSA?
1: Yes. And that was a, a phenomenon that I was recruited into. In the late 80s, I was on the full-time faculty in the ENT department at the University of Texas Southwestern at Parkland Hospital. And in 1987 or 88, Bryce Potter, who was a dual-trained oral max ENT like me, by the way, I don't recommend that
0: <laughs> my career path well, to you, anyone who's listening. <laughs> you went through a very interesting career path. Yeah,
1: I, yeah it was it was really interesting because I was focused on cancer. Anyway, back to Bryce. <laughs> So Bryce found out about me, and I thought I knew all the dual-trained people in the U.S., because it's a small number, a handful. I didn't know about Bryce in Portland, Oregon. So he called me one day and talked to my wife. And so, yeah, so we went out and came up to Portland, and um, I presented a lecture and so forth. But what what Bryce was was saddled with was having to take care of all of the calls. It was actually the anesthesiologist that noted that if a fort fracture came in, Bryce would come in, he would do it with precision and speed, do it properly, and there were very few takebacks, where when other disciplines were handling the surgery, they would take a long period of time to do the cases, and there were a number of takebacks, which you don't want. So it was the anesthesiologist that that leaned on the trauma program, the new trauma program at Legacy Emanuel Hospital, and uh, said, why don't you give the contract to Potter? So they did, but they said, you need to get in a partner. So that's where I arrived. So it didn't take me very long to figure out that Bryce, who had been a solo practitioner, had a one-man office and who had fairly recently established a relationship with the oral max program at OHSU, where they sent their residents in their four-year program to him for, for at least six months and sometimes more. And the residents got a huge amount out of that because for reasons that are as yet unclear, oral maxillofacial at OHSU back in the 80s was sort of shut out from level one trauma. But in any event, Bryce and I got along really well and I realized that this was a gold mine, not necessarily a financial gold mine, <laughs> but it was it was uh, an educational gold mine. And within the third year that I was here, no, it was the end of the second year, we were working the residents to death, having one resident on call all the time. We had to send residents home to sleep sometimes. There was just so much.
0: Just for the listeners, I'll be rotating at this place uh, in about three years. So, you know, pray for me then. (laughs) Get plenty of sleep now.
1: (laughs) Actually, it's a lot better. I've heard, yeah.
0: (laughs) So I proposed to
1: Bryce that we start a fellowship because my primary interest really was head and neck cancer. And we were doing lots of that at that point. And we did a lot of trauma. And between the two, there was plenty that that an extra person could help out with. And so we started the fellowship in 1992. And it was ostensibly a head and neck oncologic surgery fellowship. But there was also a significant amount of trauma and also a significant amount of primary cleft lip and palate because that was an interest of mine. So that's kind of how we got things going early on. And then the one call pleura to the dura was the fact that the trauma surgeons loved the fact that they only needed to know one number to call for anything maxillofacial, anything in the neck. And it was the beeper that the on-call resident had or the on-call fellow had, and the fellow helped the resident and vice versa. So one call does it all instead of worrying, well, is plastic surgery on call tonight? Oh, I'm not sure. And you call the resident, I'm not on call, you know, well, let me sleep. And you know, that, that's fine. So they liked it because they had one person that would come in, and they were usually pretty good. And the oral maxillofacial residents got pretty good pretty quick, and the fellows, of course, were fully trained out of residency, and they hopefully were already good. So we gave a great service. And then with our interest that Bryce and I had in head and neck cancer, we would do one, say, if trauma got a number of penetrating neck wounds in at the same time. But give one to us, we'd do it to us. And if we needed a vascular surgeon, we'd get everything open and ready. Vascular surgeon comes in, does the vascular work, leaves, we close the case, just help out to get trauma flowing smoothly.
0: Would Would you uh, explain what trauma call looked like before uh, just one person could do everything? Because I know, I mean, what would happen if, let's say, a child came in with maxillofacial trauma, but also had airway problems, and also had, I don't know, some other issue with the orbits or something like that?
1: Well, prior to One Call Does It All, there would be a variety of people. Uh, there might be ENT on call. We didn't have any pediatric ENTs in town at that time, but there might be one of them coming in if there were a lot of lacerations. Somebody think, well, maybe plastic surgery might feel more at home with this case, but they would be not as comfortable with the bone work. And then trying to arrange for all these people to converge in an operating room at one time for the in the best interest of the patient uh, might, might be a challenge. So there might be multiple operations each by each discipline. So having one surgeon to do all of it makes a whole lot of sense all the way around, uh, not the least of which is
0: efficiency. Mm, no, and I think, I, I mean, it's, Interesting that it was not like this from the beginning, uh, but it, I guess it's inevitable that specialties over time evolved to then converge into kind of one thing. And is this a model that you've seen replicated before, or were you guys one of the first ones to do this?
1: Well, in terms of the, the pleura to dura, one call does it all. I hadn't I hadn't really seen that before What I had seen was uh, several examples of of a hybrid practice, if you're ready to go into that. When I was a medical student at the University of Louisville, I had the great opportunity to do microvascular surgery training with Robert Ackland. And through Dr. Ackland, uh, who was a plastic surgeon, I became aware of the the Kleinert Coots hand surgery group because a number of the hand fellows would take Ackland's microvascular course for training in digital replants and that sort of thing. And I had the great luck to do one of those courses when one of the one of the people who'd signed up couldn't make it. But I became intrigued with with the Koots Kleinert hand group. And then I remembered that one of those members, uh, Joe Coots, had actually sutured up my hand and wrist when I had an on-the-job injury as an auto mechanic back in the 60s. And not that I ever knew him, but I just remember him talking to me and then in in went the Valium or whatever, and and I had my, my wrist and my hand sewed up. But I met these people. In medical school, and realized that what they had put together was an internationally known center. And uh, I, uh, the, the group still exists. It's grown hugely. They now have four offices in the Louisville area: one in Lexington, Kentucky, one in New Albany, Indiana. But they had one building that they had built, and and there they had a cafeteria for their employees. And they were the hand group. But here was the critical element. They were not part of the University of Louisville School of Medicine. They were a private practice that had made a dedicated commitment to the educational program at the University of Louisville School of Medicine. Orthopedic surgery, plastic surgery, and occasional general surgeons would do hand fellowships. And I just actually in preparation for this, I got on their website today, which is makes for interesting reading, particularly the history of, of uh, Kleinert. <laughs> but he uh, he came from Montana and on and on and on anyway. But they did the same thing when they had their group. They committed themselves to the University of Louisville, trained fellows, trained residents. And they have some they've turned out something like twelve hundred fellows. But they said also one time they had 26 fellows at a given time, but they were doing a large volume of hand surgery. Uh, They were the it go-to hand group for the state of Kentucky. So I thought, hmm, note to self, this would be a good way to practice. And when I met Bryce Potter and saw his his one-man practice and what he did, I thought this could be a Kleinert Kutz type practice. The other group I saw during my various travels and responsibilities, when I was on faculty in ENT, we went to John Peter Smith Hospital in Fort Worth, Texas, and oral maxillofacial surgery went there as well. And there was a dedicated oral maxillofacial practice group in John Peter Smith Hospital that was not a part, an economic part of the University of Texas Southwestern Department, but they were committed volunteers and they had a contract with the hospital and they were in there to stay. And of course, I showed up as the ENT oral surgeon and, and it, was, it was run then by Bruce Epker and Mike Zide. And they thought I was going to be the enemy, far from it <laughs> we We very quickly became good friends and remain so to this day. but it was they had a practice that was dedicated to but not necessarily run by the university, so they, they had a contract with the hospital as as we do. We have a contract with legacy, and that's something also in my survey, I found that most of the groups had compensation received from the hospital for directorships, uh, directorship of oral maxillofacial surgery, and also call coverage pay, significant call coverage pay.
0: And what happened next when you came here to Oregon and you start to build this model? I mean, when did you realize that having residents would be, I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, I see having fellows is a benefit, They are there to learn and they're there to follow the footsteps of more senior surgeons. But then when you add residents to it, I feel like maybe the volume might be too scarce to share with residents or um, the residents are not at the expertise to help in a very multidisciplinary approach.
1: Marcus, you pointed out something that I, I, I paid attention to, careful attention to. I didn't want the fellows and the residents to compete for cases. We had enough volume, they didn't have to do it. And also, each case, each mandible fracture, each zygoma fracture is not a one-man show. And the fellows need to learn the skills of surgical teaching, which they can do under the hovering input of myself, Bryce Potter, Brian Bell, other people who've come through and formed HNSA.
0: And do you think that Surgical teaching is a skill that every fellow wants or needs?
1: It, it is, and it's a skill that is learned through mentorship. And as attendings in a fellowship program, we need to mentor very carefully those who may come to us from programs where, they, where the teaching program is uh, by intimidation and embarrassment and humiliation. And I've certainly seen those models for teaching, particularly in general surgery, which, by the way, is what I went through the match into general surgery, not ENT.
0: Just for the listeners, Dr. Dirks went to general surgery and then uh, after medical school, he went to general surgery and then you switched to ENT is what I understand. You mentioned mentors and I call you a mentor of mine, maybe not officially, but I look at you as a mentor. And it seems like mentors have been a big part of your own life uh, through your surgical training. Do you wanna talk a little bit about Dr. Mike Flynn?
1: I do, and Mike Mike Flynn was a general surgeon, head and neck surgeon. And in the 1970s in Louisville, Kentucky, I already had a little interest in head and neck cancer but that was all done by general surgeons. And Mike Flynn had joined the practice of a, of a well-known, well-published general surgeon, head and neck surgeon. Uh, and Mike had carried that on into, you know, into the, the present day at that, at that time. And Mike was, was great at bedside manner, and much of my bedside manner is Mike Flynn. And I hope he hears this podcast because I don't know that he knows that. He probably remembers me, but but I don't know that well. Where is he at right now? Louisville, Kentucky. Okay. He's, he's probably near retirement.
0: He's still practicing, though? Uh, yeah,
1: I think so. Oh, That's wow. what I understand. Uh, so uh, he, he had the demeanor that a surgeon should have in the operating room. Uh, when things are not going well, to not get all pissy and start throwing instruments and things of that nature, which I have seen among general surgeons, uh, several in my negative mentor category. Uh, and you learn from them too.
0: And we're not just picking on general surgeons. We've I've also seen this among oral surgeons as, as well. Oh yeah. <laughs>
1: and, and if, again, back to the mentorship thing, if you go through a training program where the main attending gets Starts screaming um, curse words at the <laughs> the circulating nurse and and has the anesthesiologist all upset. Who who benefits from that? Not no one, least of all the patient lying there under general anesthesia. So I saw in Mike Flynn, the guy who could put it all together. When things got a little tight, he he took care of it or guided the The resident, through taking care of it, and would intervene only when needed and it was another thing I learned is when the resident or fellow starts to to make a wrong move if there's no harm involved, let him make that move and then realize his own mistake, and then you maybe make a whole gentle comment, and not you stupid effing idiot so. Just Did you see where you're headed here? Because we don't want to go down there. That's where the common carotid artery is. Perhaps you've heard of it. (laughs) A lot is written about it in books that you may have read or you might own, but maybe not.
0: You probably don't want to touch that. (laughs) (laughs) I I definitely have uh, mistakenly touched the carotid many times in the OR, and I'll never do that again. Yeah, I mean, it seems like, I mean, Dr. Flynn... What you talk about, Dr. Flynn, it really has shaped you and you really are, you really do live what you are talking right now. You're not just using light words. You really seem to have put this into practice, you know, and there was another mentor of yours that you talked about, which was Dr. Ed Granite. Um, he was mentioned once in your book, but not no explanation about him. Uh, afterwards. So do you want to talk a little bit about about Dr. Granite?
1: I can talk about Dr. Eddie Granite all day long. Uh, Ed was uh, a unique guy, oral surgeon in Wilmington, Delaware, in private practice, a single practitioner, and he uh, volunteered his time to the medical center. This is now the Christiana program, which has full-time faculty, but in, in my day, there was not a full-time faculty, it was volunteer faculty, and, and all those guys I, I honor so much uh, because of the time they basically contributed to our training and to the advancement of the specialty. Ed Granite had, had a, a knack for the academic, and he, he was respected broadly throughout that hospital by internal medicine, family practice people ent people thought highly of him and he did his did his work very well always with humor uh, always with respect and uh, and he he made it work being a solo practitioner still volunteering time and at the end of the day at the end of the year making enough income to pay all the bills and put something in the retirement fund and pay for his son's college education.
0: Why was he such an influential person to you?
1: I think it was style. I think it was style, and he uh, he was uh, both a mentor and a friend. And and also, after, after I was in general surgery, Ed came to a course. It was a hands-on course at Parkland Hospital that R.V. Walker had put on. And I was in the dressing room. Uh, and in walks Ed Granite, Ed, Eric. And he said, I was hoping I'd see you here. And, and, you know, I didn't know that he was coming. And so Dr. Walker was changing clothes in the next row of lockers. said, Dr. Walker, this is the man who staffed me on the first operation of my career. And, and he did. First day in the OR, I removed a stone from a submandibular duct. Learned how to place a suture proximally to keep it from sliding. I don't actually do that anymore. I do it all <laughs> differently, but you know that's a, yeah. it, it was a stepping stone. But uh, Ed, Ed was, <clears throat> excuse me, knowledgeable, pleasant, respected by all, and and respect that
0: he earned. Well, thanks for touching up on uh, Dr. Grenna. I really want to know about these people. So we're talking about mentors, and it seems like people have just shaped you a lot as a surgeon. And so what I'm getting out of this is that the people you work with are extremely important. It's not just the opportunity that's there. It's not just the location, but it is the core group of people that shape you, but also the that you work with long-term. And this is something that I really believe that having long-term relationships leads to the best outcomes in anything. I think it's like compound interest. Uh, it just builds up over time, having long-term friends, long-term business partners, and so on. And so what you've done with HNSA, you have a group of surgeons who are very kind-hearted, very great surgeons, and they don't you know, berate uh, their residents. They don't yell at them. Everyone has a similar philosophy. And so to bring us back to the hybrid practice, something that I have a question about, and I couldn't get this answered, but when I look at HNSA, you guys do literally full scope OMS, dental, ear, implant, zygomatic implant, orthognathic surgery, sleep surgery, head and neck, and now even craniofacial. How do you build a referral base for such a wide scope practice?
1: I I think that the fact that Bryce and I were both board certified in ENT helped tremendously, frankly, in the you know in the early '90s. Oral, oral surgery in, in Portland, Oregon was not really that much of a surgical specialty. They, they had a rule that Bryce Potter told me the story, that in credentialing of oral surgeons at Emanuel Hospital, when Bryce came, which was, I think, 1979, 1980, oral surgeons could not make an incision on the skin. And they were going to, they, the Credentials Committee, if I recall correctly, there was a plastic surgeon on that, and they were going to not allow Bryce, and so he reminded them that he was a board-certified ENT, and how could he possibly do a neck dissection without making an incision? And oh, 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 you know, and that did help us at that time. But that was then, and this is now. And nowadays i think in the united states the the specialty of oral maxillofacial surgery and the scope of that specialty is evolving more toward the european model where european oral maxillofacial surgeons tend to be the discipline that does oral cancer surgery and i wrote in a preface to uh, clinics or of or, yeah, oral maxillofacial clinics of north america that Brian Bell and I did together. And I, I said, without evidence, but but based on my experience, if you have an oral cancer, you are more like, and you live on planet Earth. Yeah, you have oral cancer, if you I live on planet all. Earth, <laughs> you, <all> <laughs> you are more likely than not to be treated by someone with the letters DDS or its equivalent behind their name, along maybe with others, but then you are not to have that. And I think that's true because if you look at India and if you look at China, you know, ka-ching, ka-ching, most of the oral surgeons, most of the oral cancer is done by oral surgeons. So we have, what, two thirds of the world's population right there. So I stand by that statement. Hmm.
0: And so for your practice now, how do you build such a wide uh, referral base for all the different types of surgery that you do? I ask that because One, it's hard to network with the outside providers to refer all these cases to you, but also it's hard to train your staff, uh, PAs, dental assistants, your front desk, to know how to triage these patients with chief complaints to the right provider, because not everyone at HNSA does does craniofacial and so on.
1: We we have evolved into that uh, over the years, but you're exactly right, it it has been a problem and a recurring problem early in, in the development of HNSA. When it was just Bryce Potter and me, we both were interchangeable. He liked cosmetic surgery more than, than I did, but I did it. And I liked cancer more than he did, but he, he did it and he did lots of it. And we both did trauma. So just come in the door, you know, just pick one. Uh, but then we had people with other interests and other backgrounds. And it it, it was a situation of training and retraining the front desk, uh, the people that answered the telephone. And then also we we reached out to our referral sources by being sure that that we kept them apprised of of what was happening with their patient, their cancer patient they had referred to us. When I when I got here, in the summer of 1990, uh, I was pretty busy through the summer, but then in the fall, trauma slows up a bit, and so I went on a safari, and that safari took me throughout the state of Oregon. I took my wife when we were childless at that time, and I called on oral surgeons, general surgeons, and ENT surgeons, and I wanted to say, I would be very happy to do your cancer cases, anything that you don't want to do. And I also emphasized that I had a great experience in dealing with surgical complications. Why? Because I created so many surgical complications. (laughs) And probably that's it. But being at, at three major head and neck cancer hospitals, Parkland Hospital, John Peter Smith, the Dallas VA, and then later the university hospital. I I had a whole bunch of experience and I said, I'm happy to see transfer of complication patients and manage them in a non-judgmental way and just get the patient fixed. I think I have an advantage. I think that resonated with with a lot of them. Uh, None of the oral surgeons did cancer really Uh, most of the ENTs were trained at OHSU, but they weren't all that happy with the customer service they were getting at that time. That has since changed, OHSU does a much better job. And I would get them copies of PATH reports, copies, you know, this, all the stuff they need to put in the patient's paper chart back in the office. So we were good about that, that developed some allegiance of referrals. And so the referral to OHSU for oral cancer, you know, well, yeah, you don't want to go there. Yeah, I know they charge for parking and you know the traffic's awful, but they
0: still charge for parking, Doctor Dirks. <laughs> I know they do. <laughs>
1: uh, and you know, there's there's another group of some good people that you can go to, and they're in Northwest Portland, and you don't have to pay for parking. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we were. And the ENT faculty then and now, we we get along just great. And uh, Jamie Cohen, who was my should have been my competitor when I got here, very quickly we figured out we were the friendliest of crosstown rivals. And people wanting second opinions, oh yeah, go up there and he's a great guy and does quality service. And if you like, if you like him better, no sweat, have him do your surgery. And he would probably say the same thing about me, in which he
0: has. Tell me more about him. Is he still around in this area?
1: Uh, he he uh, went into semi-retirement a number of years ago. Left the department, but was still in the department. But he is chief of otolaryngology at the at the VA, and I think he has been chief of surgery too. I've kind of lost contact with him, uh, but I think he's still still in the game.
0: Coming back to the referral base. In, my, in a previous episode of mine with Dr. Engelstad, he says that a curse of oral surgeons is that we have to constantly explain what we actually do to other providers. And so for oral surgeons today, they still have that problem. When they want to have, let's say, a cancer patients referred to their practice, maybe providers who are not familiar with oral surgery, they're going to ask that question, like, how do I know that you can do a good job? And do you have any advice for younger surgeons on how they can kind of expand their scope, build their referral base, but uh, also have to deal with this uh, cursive oral surgery?
1: Uh, I think the, the phenomenon of the dual degree movement in the United States is, is an example of the rising tide that raises all boats. And uh, as you are learning in the medical school part of your residency, You form close friendships with your medical school classmates, and you go on through the further steps of your training alongside them, and many of them will will stay at OHSU for their residency in general surgery, in orthopedics, in plastic, whatever, and they know you as a fellow physician, and the having to qualify yourself has kind of gone away. At least to my perception in, in that scenario. Um, having a fellowship is extremely important. If, if you want to set out to focus on one area and head and neck oncologic surgery, to do a large volume of those cases is just about a requirement. Cleft craniofacial is, is, is a hard market to break into. But having a fellowship with a large clinical experience, and if in a, in a nice way you can just present that to a potential referrer, that goes a long way as well. Um, but it kind of boils down to, you know, human being to human being diplomacy. Some people got it, you know, people that have charisma, some people don't have it at all. And and then there's most of us in the middle who occasionally we're schmucks. <laughs> most of the time we're okay. Occasionally we're really, really nice. Yeah, <laughs> uh, But that's kind of what
0: it boils down to. Do you see any drawbacks of being affiliated with the residency program uh, with your hybrid practice? Financial. Financial, how so? Uh,
1: clearly. It, it's it's no surprise to anyone listening to this podcast that oral and maxillofacial surgeons make their money from oral surgery. They don't make it from maxillofacial. A, a very small handful do, and and their maxillofacial. I'm referring to orthognathic surgery. But yeah, that to spend a significant amount of time working with residents, it takes away from the potential to earn money from doing more straightforward procedures uh scheduling more exodontia oh i know that very distinctly because when i when i came here coming out of full time ENT academics i i was going to be a trauma and head and neck oncologic and reconstructive surgery and a little bit more but i wasn't going to do teeth i wasn't going to do implants and it took about 7 years before my wife and I figured we've got to do something different or move or go back into full-time academics because I just was not making money. Because head and neck cancer does not pay well. It never has and it probably never will. For reasons, I don't know. Cleft lip palate does not pay well. Complex surgery does not pay well unless you're in neurosurgery or orthopedics. It's strange. So 1997 was for me, the year of the tooth, and that was the year that I started doing exodontia and implants. And one of my ENT friends commented that, "Yeah, Eric, and 1998 was the year of the Porsche, right?" <laughs> That's true because I actually got a used Boxster the next year. <laughs> so, so yeah, yeah, true, true, but not related. Yeah, true, true, but <laughs> not, I mean, not related. Yeah.
0: Well, this makes me then wonder about for people who are interested in building a hybrid practice, because I, I am, uh, a lot of my mentors, or a couple of my mentors have done it successfully. Dr. Bobek, who has, I believe, worked at HNSA for a He bit. did, yeah. I talked to him a lot about how he built his hybrid practice, and I'm trying to get him to be a guest on the show too. But how would new residents and new surgeons coming out of residency build a hybrid practice. It seems like having the hybrid practice strengthens our profession, helps put ourselves on the map, um, but it's financially straining. And so how do we both manage doing dental, vular, and implants, but also build this presence in the hospital?
1: Well, it starts while you're in training and keep your debt low, keep your debt low. And that is so important. Um, so if, if you, you know, finished a dual degree program, that's high tuition, you're married, you have a couple of kids during residency, you can't do it. You can't do it. And you may be able to reenter academics uh, later in your career, as several of my friends have done. But, um, but that's going back. Once you've made enough money that you can retire on. Then at age, you know, 48, going into full-time academics and finish out your career doing that. And that's interesting and fun, too. But keep debt low. Uh, Manage expectations. Uh, You know, no, honey, I I don't think we can join the country club. I I know it would be fun.
0: Uh, But, yeah. Are you in any country clubs right now? Well,
1: yeah, I am. Uh, The Multnomah Athletic Club. But that's it.
0: So, w- I mean, we, we talk about the learning, the you know, managing your debt, uh, managing expectations during residency and so on. But it seems like there are fewer and fewer mentors who run a hybrid practice model, and it's harder to ask them about advice. I, I don't think anyone, at, especially at, on the OHSU side, has a hybrid practice. Maybe I think Dr. Petrazor does but how would residents learn more about hybrid practice models and how to pursue them?
1: Probably they will learn a lot about it if they do a fellowship in one of the hybrid practice places. Um, For example, uh, the University of Michigan has an excellent uh, fellowship in head and neck oncologic and microvascular reconstructive surgery, but it's totally within a department within the University of Michigan. Uh, And then contrast that with uh, Dr. Fayette Williams at John Peter Smith Hospital, who has a hybrid practice. Uh, You know, he he removes wisdom teeth and generates income that way. The faculty at Michigan uh, don't anywhere near as much. Fayette, by the way, did his fellowship at Michigan. But, but then he went and started a private practice, or he, he joined a practice that was a hybrid already, and then he brought to that practice head and neck cancer surgery.
0: Do you feel like hybrid practices should affiliate with the residency pro- program but not be part of it?
1: Uh, I do, because, because the hybrid practices offer so much, I think, to to the the breadth and the depth of residency programs. Again, back to that, three-armed model of having trauma being taught to oral surgery residents, ENT, plastic surgery residents. And well, you know, you can do this, you can't do that. And all that goes away when you have the hybrid practice, because you do it all. If things are set up right, you just do it all. And if you want a consult from an ENT colleague, you, you, you request that. But they expect you to to do it all
0: anyway. Do you do you think that residents have to be in a fellowship to build these uh, hybrid practice models?
1: I I think it's hard to do it without that. I see. As as I went through my survey, I actually found that that not all had, and that that surprised me. Um, so the the five practices. Um, There were 36 surgeons within all the groups. I had pretty strict criteria, of course. And yeah, the unifying things were having a fellowship and contracted call coverage.
0: Also, I saw that on the abstract that a lot of the surgeons' ages range from 30 and up. It seems like even a lot of younger surgeons can join these hybrid groups. Do you see more opportunities coming in the future, or do you think that it takes someone to set up shop to then offer spots to graduates.
1: Well, truly success builds on success. And if a practice has gravitated that way under previous management or current current management, and someone is brought into that group who has something special to add, then the the Hybrid practice gets stronger, more diverse, and is that much more of an asset to the neighboring program, residency program. I think only one of my five was not affiliated with a residency program.
0: Only one of five, mm-hmm.
1: and yet that that program has rotating residents from other unaffiliated programs.
0: From the that practices perspective, like we mentioned earlier, how having residents takes away some of the financial benefits. Do you think that practice has other benefits that they gain without having residents there besides the finances?
1: Yes. I, I think they're well-managed and and they do just fine. And our group is well-managed. We do just fine. Better than we did when I was... Oh, anyway. <laughs> but no sour grapes. That's fine. Yeah. our Our group does well. And we have also emphasized that we have to be an oral surgery practice, and that's kind of where it came from. Because in American oral surgery, we we have a golden goose that lays golden eggs, and those golden eggs are called wisdom teeth. And, and we provide a quality service to patients who need that, they're healthy, and you get good at it and you can do a certain volume. And that goes a long way to supporting other activities you can choose to use that to support a hobby and that hobby may be golf or that hobby might be head and neck oncologic surgery but if you don't look to make that as a source of income a predictable steady source of income to the practice and if you're in a situation where you can walk out of your practice your brick-and-mortar practice for a day, every week, and pay your staff to do nothing. And then the, the next day, then back to work, That that's a tall order. If there are two people in the group, then all of a sudden that becomes a lot more economically manageable. So it's real hard to do that as a solo practitioner. Mm-hmm. But that's how many of the Harvard practices started.
0: So, If I was a patient and I was coming to HNSA and I wanted to, or not that I wanted to, but if I had to get my mandible uh, removed or, or a portion of it, and, you know, I, as a patient, I'm looking at this as a private practice, but then you tell me that a resident will perform on me and I start to freak out. How do you manage patients that way? If patients come in for surgery from an expert, but then they're getting residents to operate on them.
1: Uh, that's an easy question, Marcus. That, that's an easy one. Um, what I tell patients, there are several things that I say. The first is I operate with both hands. And when I operate with a trainee, I operate left-handed if the trainee's right-handed. And, and I, I say, if, if you were a fly on the ceiling and you look down, and you would see four hands in motion. In my my cases, you could not tell which are mine, although they're usually the big ones, and which are the resident or the fellows. And another way to look at this is I can do the surgery by myself. I need a surgical assistant, however, and there are surgical assistants that might be someone with the letters RN after their name. Or a surgical technologist. And they're they're good people and they're in surgery all the time. I could do the case with that person, but I prefer to have someone assisting me and working with me whose brain is in the operation as well. Not thinking about, am I gonna get off at the end of my shift or will I have to stay later because we're so busy in here. So I like that intellectual stimulation and also having a young, smart person ask me questions that I don't really know the answer to. But it gives us something to think about, which usually benefits the patient lying there on the operating table. And also, in the middle of the night, God forbid, you have an emergency in the hospital. There is a very good chance that that trainee that resident that fellow will probably be in the hospital anyway doing something else and they're at your bedside in a heartbeat mm-hmm. another advantage of having trainees involved in your surgery the and, the
0: young bodies can move faster and they they can stay up later
1: right and i walked the walk i had a hernia done when when i was at at the University of Texas, and I told the surgeon, who was my good friend, let the resident do it. And so that, that's what happened.
0: And how'd it go? We're great. Yeah, you're yeah. still here? Still here, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Would you let me operate on you? Sure. It depends <laughs> on what stage you were and what the operation was. <laughs> oh, I, uh, man. I hope I, I hope you don't regret that by the time I'm uh, graduating. <laughs> um, you know, we're kind of coming to the end of the episode You know, there's something that, uh, you know, we've probably touched upon many times, but just to put into words, what is preventing new graduates from establishing a hybrid model or pursuing it? Do you think it's more that most oral surgery residents who come in, they come in with the idea of, I just want to do dental alveolar and implants, or do you think that it's more so that we come in with this dream to do great surgery and keep our footing in dentistry, but we realize the reality is a lot harder than we thought.
1: Well, I think a, a, a part of this is how we're hardwired at the factory, and I was hardwired to do the biggest and and the the most challenging, and that's what I wanted. As a mechanic, and the owner of the shop, he would put me on the. And well German cars because I read the read the <laughs> manual the shop manual because then they're often in German language but uh, he um, but not everybody's like me and, and maybe like you and then other people look at oral surgery and they say this is interesting but to a point and I want to have a large family and I want to do things that are very very important to me and to my wife and so I've got a figure out how to make this work. And that's fine, too. It's perfectly fine. Uh, so the field has enough opportunities, I think, to accommodate all of these varying viewpoints and varying motivations. Uh, so I'm not looking down my nose at, at anyone for wanting to do teeth and implants. And, and that's, that's just fine. Uh, But I think also doing a fellowship is a marker for wanting, being that person hardwired at the factory like I was, that you wanna do the most, the max, do
0: it all. I wonder how residencies could help foster that kind of desire during the residency. It feels like most people are, are, uh, they have figured themselves out by the end of dental school. And so when they get into oral surgery, they might already be set in stone that they just want to do dental and implants um you know as we kind of close up on this uh episode you know i just want to ask you because you're a senior surgeon you've been you know a very prominent figure in the field i think most would call you a giant in the field uh figuratively and literally uh you are what six three six four six three six three um where would you like to see oms go in the next 20 years
1: Uh, Well, where I'd like to see it go is without me, (laughs) because I I do think that it's extremely important that when you get to a certain point in your career, you really shouldn't be in the operating room anymore. I miss it terribly, but as you know, I'm semi-retired now. Uh, But anyway, back to the answer to your question. I, I think that we will be seeing in 20 years more of the same on a slow movement of oral maxillofacial surgeons in the United States to maybe emulate the European colleagues more, to to have uh, an interest and expertise and training in the full scope, including oncologic surgery, including microvascular. Uh, and, in Europe and I th- I know a little bit more about the German system just about every german oral maxillofacial resident has done a free flap a- at a minimum one some many many more and so we'll we'll see that becoming more mainstream i think the the difference in in experience that you get in a training program that is independent from a dental school versus the training programs that are within dental schools, that difference will shrink. And there will be broad scope, major surgery, and lots of it available to both groups, where I perceive, maybe I'm wrong, I perceive that the non-dental school affiliated programs do more surgery. This may be a research
0: project for you. Uh, That will be a great research project. (laughs) Hopefully my listeners don't steal that idea. I know we're working on a project right now that I'm that I should be working on instead of this podcast, but we're here. Um, well, Dr. Dirks, thank you for your time. I'm sure this, this topic uh, is something that's been on many people's minds, at least the residents at my program talk about it a lot. Uh, and I believe it's probably the same case at other programs. Um, Where can listeners find you uh, if they want to learn more about you or look more into HNSA? Do you have an email website that you want to give to the podcast listeners? Sure.
1: Uh, Let me give both. Uh, Our HNSA website is www.head-neck, and that's uh, midline-headneck.com.
0: And I'll put this in the show notes. Yeah.
1: And uh, my personal email is simple, eric.dirks at gmail.com.
0: Awesome. Do you have any shout outs to any mentors? I know, I hope Mike Flynn, Dr. Mike Flynn, listens to this, but anyone else?
1: Uh, you know, there, there there are so many. And, and also at, the, at, at my point in life, uh, many of my excellent mentors have gone on to their great operating room in the sky. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, shout out to all my friends in Delaware. Who, uh I, I go there with some frequency and uh, thoroughly enjoyed the three years I spent there. You know, it was only a three-year residency back in that time. And uh, Larry Giordano, uh, for one, he's probably not my most senior uh, existing mentor.
0: Well, a last fun question before we say goodbye is, uh, what is your favorite operating room song?
1: I think the one that I've listened to the most, I like all music, and my interest in yodeling music, both both German, Austrian, Swiss, and Texas yodeling, is not shared by most members <laughs> of the operating theme, but uh, Dire Straits, Money for Nothing, Chicks for Free, is one that I've done so many operations to in the 80s and the 90s, and the 2000s, and on to this day,
0: <laughs> the listeners will be curious. But have you played your music during an operation? Yes. And how the how the staff respond?
1: It was uh, not respond not responded too well. I have a good friend who uh, is uh, is an anesthesiologist, and I gave her a disc of some, and she she is also she speaks German, and uh, so. I asked her how she liked it. And she said, Eric, I use it as a weapon. If if the surgeon is taking too long to do an operation, this should be quicker. I turn on yodeling.
0: I hope that's not the legacy that people remember you by. I hope not either. <laughs> well, Dr. Dirks, um, thank you so much for your time. It was a, it was a great uh, conversation with you. And hopefully we can uh, talk again on the show.
1: Thank you, Marcus. I enjoyed it.